Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. I'm here today with Anna Crabb, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Energy Foundation. Welcome, Anna. It's lovely to have you here today. Thank you. Likewise. And Anna has done a lot of interesting things in her career. She spent time at B-Lab, which is an organisation that works with businesses who have an interest in social impact as well. She also worked at Social Ventures Australia, a well-known consulting organisation that works with non-profit organisations. And she's also spent time in government. So she's got a really interesting and diverse set of experiences. And I was fascinated to find out about Anna and the Australian Energy Foundation and what they do. So we'll get into that a little bit in a little bit. But I also wanted to ask Anna the question that I always ask everybody, which is about your vision for Australia. If you could wave a magic wand, what you hope Australia will look and feel like in 20 years' time. But the interesting thing about Anna is that she's actually done this homework before. She's written a beautiful vision statement for Australia through a little bit of her vision statement. But I do want to, if you want to check out her beautiful vision statement, which is probably longer than what she'll talk about now, where can people find that, Anna? Yeah, so I was asked by a wonderful woman, Willow Burzen, who started the Future Now project to think about my vision for Australia. So it's on the Future Now uh, website. I can check it out there, but I'll give you a sense of uh, some of the key parts of it. And it really came about when I was jackhammering concrete off the side, down the side of my house and finding generation after generation of concrete in my backyard, a typical northern Melbourne suburban backyard. But really, my vision really comes down to thinking about the just safe and just space for humanity, which is the concept that Kate Raworth talks about in Donut Economics, I really see that that is what we need to aspire to, which is making sure that all the needs of humanity and extending that to other creatures on the earth met within the bounds of what the planet can tolerate. And so that's the end goal. And to get there, I think we really need to be thinking about living interdependently, so drawing on our solar, our wind, proper use of water sources so that we can have that infinite use of resources rather than the wasteful in and out system that we use at the moment. And it's also partly about how we are as people and how we're relating to each other as well. So how we are in the world is a big part of my uh, utopian uh, vision, somewhat utopian vision. So thinking about all moving in a direction together, being thinking about creating lives that are meaningful for everyone in our community and working in a way and living in a way that's beneficial to each other and the environment that we're in as well. Thank you. Thank you. And tell me a little bit more about the Australian Energy Foundation, what it does and and what you're working on. Yeah, I'm so thrilled that I'm in week nine now of heading up the Australian Energy Foundation. It's a brilliant organisation that got started over 20 years ago and it has a real community heart and place-based connection to the organisation. used to um, be known for the local area that it started in, but now that we have the national scope, we're really focused on what we can do to accelerate the transition to an equitable 
carbon-free society. So there's lots of big words in there, but basically what makes us different from some other organisations working in this space is the equitable focus. So it's really clear now there seems to be uh, potential for two tiers to be emerging, those that can afford electric vehicles, those that can afford their own solar and battery to really look after their own energy needs and completely dip out of the system. And those in the community that don't have those resources to buy those things that are at risk of missing out entirely and have to cop paying for all of those system costs that the whole community has up until now been paying for. So we bring the equitable part of it in and we also um, deliver. So every single day that we're operating, we're making homes and businesses more energy efficient and we're making the uptake of renewable energy greater as well. So pretty good feeling to be doing that every day. Thank you. And you talked about the cost, right? So one of the interesting things about energy efficiency is it's something that we'd all love to be on the other side of. If you can live in a home that's insulated, and we might talk a little bit about that, even some of your, I think, personal experiences of the before and after, what a difference some of those things can make. But they can be, if I think about my to-do list, they can be some of the most daunting things on that list because you've got to get multiple quotes you don't even know what you're trading off you don't you know that as you said some of these things can be expensive so lots of barriers not even not just financial right for people but the financial one is high so talk to me a little bit more about the sorts of things that that people can do around the home to improve efficiency but why it can be hard to do Great question. And I so hear where you're coming from. We're lucky enough to upgrade our house and we made energy efficiency and sustainability a real priority. This was even before I was in this role, but wanting to do what we could to reduce our emissions and and make our footprint smaller. And while the renovation was happening, we were living in a rental that was absolutely freezing in winter and boiling hot in summer to the point where of course during restrictions I was working in the laundry and I had to have sweat towels over me because there was absolutely no insulation no flooring in the laundry whatsoever and then I've been able to move back into our home where we've been able to install insulation put double glazed windows in seal up all of those holes around the house and we did have solar and battery already so there are quite simple things that you can do that aren't too costly so finding those holes and blocking them so draft proofing your home is quite simple insulation is relatively uh, inexpensive so there can be quite small changes you can make and there are a lot of rebates and incentives that different state governments have available to to do that But the other part of the equation, as you said, is actually the time and effort it takes to coordinate. And so that's part of the work that we do as well, actually help people find out what the options are, get quotes from trusted suppliers and make that process much easier than it would be otherwise. Yeah, this is something that we don't always appreciate in Australia. People are thinking a lot more about now as people are spending a lot more time at home. If you're not going off to a workplace where there is some temperature control. The fact that our houses are really badly designed in Australia. I was talking to some neighbours from Germany who talked about they they are never so cold as they are in Australia because we have homes that are built without insulation. And I certainly remember when I was a university student, I was living in 
in a house in Canberra that was pretty old. It had one gas heater, that was it, and no insulation. And some nights we, like all of us, slept in sleeping bags on the floor in that room because it was the only room with heating. And of course, there's lots of people who are living like that, to your point, all the time. For some people, that's every day for their whole life. And it doesn't have to be like that. So we have this weird thing where some, I guess, people came over from the UK and thought it was all sunny and put a whole lot of building stock in that didn't reflect the fact that it does actually get quite cold uh, in the winter and overnight sometimes. But that is different to other parts of the world, isn't it? We're quite unusual in the low quality of our housing stock and some of those that the features like insulation and double brick and those things. And I, like you, I had a sense of it and have experienced it from traveling overseas, but I've been gobsmacked since I've started this role to actually learn the figures around this area. Out of the 25 most developed countries, Australia's housing stock um, scores 18th out of 25, which is very low and it's not like it's just houses that were built decades ago a lot of those are underperforming but we're not fixing the problem now either only one in ten houses built last year achieved a good energy efficiency rating so we've got a a historic problem but we've got a current problem too that we're not fixing or, or plugging the gap in what we're doing in a housing system wow wow that is actually, I'm pretty shocked by that. And part of the reason I'm pretty shocked by that is because I had the opportunity to do some work in this space about 10 or 13 years ago. And we had all the research about how these are things that are net economically positive for everybody. It reduces bills. It's a great thing to do. So I thought that the standards would at least have increased. How are the standards managed? Are these decisions at a state level or are they the federal standards? Up until now, they have been at a state level. So there's a movement of the standards over to the national level. But speaking to the federal government in the last few weeks, the intention is only voluntary standards that they're moving towards. We're not even discussing mandatory standards, improvements at this point in time, which, yeah, was a real surprise when I learned of that. Sometimes when you have these things, it's because an organisation or a group of organisations benefits from the status quo. I, I don't feel like I can make the connection. What would be the reasons that it might not make sense to raise the standards of our homes? I think partly is habit. So, for example, one of the projects we're doing at the Australian Energy Foundation is looking at how to get plumbers to switch from recommending gas hot water systems to recommending hot water heat pumps. Plumbers have been in the habit for decades of recommending gas hot water systems so they know the product really well, they know how to install it, they know how to cost it, they know the whole process and they're really comfortable with it. And when someone's hot water system bursts and they call up the plumber and want something done quick, the plumber just does what they've always done. Rather than getting familiar with new product, making changes, and installing the hot water heat pump. So it's partly a function of skills in the workforce, habit, and consumers not necessarily knowing what to ask for and consumers really not demanding it. Like you said before, often we're looking at the amenity of a property, how great it looks, where it's positioned, those sorts of things. So I guess in terms of who benefits, it's the tradespeople that have always done things the way how they have done things. 
that they can continue to do it because there aren't significant numbers of people calling for things to be done differently. So they haven't put in the effort uh, to change the way that they've been doing things, is my understanding. That's really interesting. And look, I have seen the same thing in a completely unrelated industry where as part of part of some work I was doing, we were looking at trying to get surgeons to all use the same knee for a knee replacement because it was cheaper and, and better. And that's what the research had shown. But every surgeon wanted to stick to their kind of knee. And so the hospital was, you know, purchasing, I don't know, 20 different types of knee, which is very expensive. And some were older technology and not as good. And it is interesting that kind of inertia changes hard and we don't like to learn new things. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. The other thing that you talked about was standards. I know that some in the ACT, when my mum was looking at her house, there was a rating standard there, but that wasn't true when we were buying our house here in New South Wales. There was no rating, energy rating standard. So obviously different states are doing different things. And we all care a lot about the price of housing in Australia in all sorts of different directions, of course. But are there risks in putting in place more standardised systems? Is that going to, if you've been living in a lovely location house, but it suddenly gets smacked with a one-star rating, is, is there a bit of inertia about that as well? Knowing that the vast majority of houses in Australia would rate one star, two star, three star, it's not a good look for real estates to be going out and having on a, seven, on a 10 star rating system, the bulk of your properties for sale are only showing up at three stars. So I think there would probably be some pushback from real estates not wanting to present properties in that way. Setting that aside, the gains that we would get from that market signal would be huge. Just having that, the mandatory standards for new property builds and renovations to meet higher energy efficiency or to meet a energy efficiency standard and a thermal comfort standard would be a really good motivator. Having requirements around when a rental is up for, for lease, having that information reported and available to renters. And then at the point of home sale also, because it does also come down to equity and justice. If you're making a financial decision, you're not just making a financial decision based on the property as is at that point in time. What you buy has financial implications across the whole period of time you're living in that home. So it's a really important factor for people to know. It's just that people aren't educated about how much of an effect that will have on them in, in the long run. You talked about being surprised by some of the numbers. Is that something that you can talk to as well? The dollar savings of putting insulation in or, or sealing up the cracks. Have you got figures that you use to help people understand the size of the opportunity? Yeah, so easily if you spend $10,000 overall, that's quite a comprehensive home energy efficiency upgrade. You can pay that off over a few years. So it's not going to take long uh, to do that overall to make those changes. But a simple upgrade like spending $1,000 on draft proofing will have a really significant impact in and of itself. So it's not huge dollars that we're talking about for a large portion of the population. Of course, those numbers are out of reach for a portion of the population. But for a lot, people don't need to spend a whole lot to um, get really good home energy efficiency gains and savings and all the other benefits of having a more comfortable, cosy, healthy home to live in. I 
think sometimes that sort of idea of payback is something that's not always totally intuitive. I know it's very specific for every home it would be, but are there some kind of rough things that people can think about? Oh, my bill's gone down by this much or... It is, yeah, as you say, really dependent on climate and size and a few factors. But one thing you can do is go to the Axmart Renters website. It was developed for renters, but as relevant for homeowners as well. And you can plug in a few variables about your property and it will actually tell you exactly how much you can expect to save if you make different improvements, whether that be putting better window furnishings in or whether it's insulation or draft proofing, it can actually tell you exactly for your type of property variables how much um, benefit you'll get from doing that. Oh, that's very handy. That's really good. And you're talking about the draft proofing. I didn't know that we had a draft until we had the bushfires and we'd close all the doors and the windows, but the smoke was still coming in. And it was interesting. It was a bit like an air mattress where it's hard to find the leak. People put it underwater and then you find the hole and then you can patch it up. But that smoke, in a way, acted the same way. So we're able to see where the leak was. And as you were saying, I just went and bought some of that ceiling tape and shoved it in. I did stick it on, but it wasn't a very sophisticated job. But the difference that that made in the temperature was extraordinary. One thing that when I chatted to you a little while back, you talked to me about, which I had never thought about in Australia, was the fact that because we've not been good at this as a country, some of the things that we need, so in I used to live in the States, and in the States, people often have what they call storm windows. We, we often call it double glazing, but it, it's two layers of glass with a little bit of a gap in between. And as we know, all insulation is basically about air bubbles, right? So if you've got a jumper, it's a little bit of air that's trapped, or if you've got whatever it is, fluffy insulation, it's the same thing. So by trapping that little bit of air, it's much quieter, it's warmer, and all of those good things. But... I think you said that we don't make a lot of those sorts of products here in Australia. And so that can also make it more expensive and and tougher. There's a few aspects of this because we haven't historically had the standards that have mandated this. The things that have driven growth in industry have really been government programs. So, for example, one of the hopes out of the Victorian government's investment in Homes Victoria, the big housing build, in terms of upgrading and creating new social and affordable housing. Having home energy efficiency standards there will drive growth of industry in some of these areas, but it's only been periodic investment where industry has grown to meet that demand and then fallen away. So we we don't want to mention the the fiasco that happened with insulation some time ago. There is... um, still that nervousness in governments around what those sorts of programs might entail but it has meant that there hasn't been stability in those particular industry segments in terms of glaziers in terms of insulation companies a few of the different trades that really go into making a home energy efficient there hasn't been stable work and so there hasn't been growth in those industries so we have really big gaps in terms of if the federal government which I'd love them to do, decided that they needed to fix this problem and decided that they wanted to put investment into incentivising and making home energy efficiency upgrades. We don't yet have the workforce across the whole of the country to be able to deliver that program. So any increase would need to be thought through. 
one of the challenges for governments in this space is that any time a government starts to try to sort of drive something to happen faster than might happen with a natural cycle, you often see implementation challenges. One of the other, other things that we're not very good at in Australia is we're not really good at swapping the lessons from those things between the states. So I think it, it does present some interesting challenges. But also, it sounds like what you're describing would present some interesting opportunities as well. And I imagine it's a bit chicken and egg. You don't have demand because you don't have a product. and You don't have people marketing the product. Without the product, you can't meet the demand. It, it can get stuck in a loop. I talked about having done some work way back when in energy efficiency. This was looking at the national um, economic opportunities of energy efficiency. If we retrofitted, so retrofitting means you're not building a new home, but you're making your existing home more energy efficient. Those things are net economic contributors in a big way. So they are a lot of, they are a lot of gross domestic product, GDP, they actually add a lot of value back. And when we were having that conversation with governments, they were saying, how can that be? How can it be that there are all these, this kind of money on the table and no one's taking those opportunities? Because normally you think if there's an economic opportunity, it's a capitalist society, people would have started the business. But these things arise because of what we call market failures. So the problem, as you've described, is that almost always the person who's building the building isn't the person who's going to live in it. And the person... And especially when you've got a, a landlord and a tenant, it's not in the landlord's interest because they're not paying the energy bills to put in the efficiency mechanisms. And so you have one of these things where even though for everybody it would be better to have warmer houses, you'd save money, you'd save energy, you'd reduce pollution and net economic contribution, people don't do it because the alignment between the person who needs to spend the money and the person who gets the benefit isn't there. So there are these interesting examples, as you said, where you've got situations like the government where they can do it in their own property. There are lots of public buildings. You talk about public housing, but of course there are also big other state government buildings. And interestingly, in the corporate sector, you see a lot of energy efficiency things because often people own the building or they're definitely paying the energy bills and they've got the money so they can make the upfront investment. So you get more energy efficiency stuff happening in corporate buildings, which is why you're more comfortable if you go and work in an office in that office than you are in your own home. But yeah, it is tricky because it's not something that the market is just going to take care of itself. Unfortunately, it is something where you do need government to step in, but they haven't had a great track record of success to date in doing that in a really systematic way. But other countries are doing it and seem to be doing a little bit better than us. Do you know about anything else that's happening in other countries around these areas? As a recent entry to this space, I'm not too familiar with what's happening with different retrofitting programs in other places. I do know around the energy advice side of the spectrum that there are much larger scale energy advice services available in the US and the UK than we have in Australia. So Australian Energy Foundation also provides a energy advice service where you can call up and say, I've got a draft, what do I do? Or I'm really cold, what should I do in my house? Or I want to get solar, what should I do? Those sorts of things. In the uh, US and the UK, they've got national models for those services and they're actually funded by uh, a levy from energy distributors, which makes it a sustainable ongoing service that's available to everyone in those populations. And they're run locally on a local level, but funded through that model. So I know 
that is happening and that's part of the picture too and I think with more extreme temperatures with us having more very hot days each year with us having more extreme weather events it may bump up that to-do list that people start thinking about and wanting to do more of these upgrades, these improvements in their own homes when they have the capacity to be able to do that, both the time and energy and financial. But, yeah, we're not quite there yet. You talked about the fact that people can call and get that advice. How does that work? Yeah, great question. We'd love to be at the point where we can take a call from anyone in Australia and have a 20-minute consultation with them, learn about their home, figure out what they need and then um, set them on the right path. At the moment, we uh, provide that service through subscriptions that local councils provide. So local council will subscribe so that their residents are able to call and use the service. So we're working with 45 councils at the moment. So that's roughly 10% of councils around the country. We'd love to have more councils on board so that we can be speaking with more Australians about making these improvements. So if somebody's sitting at home thinking, Oh, that sounds brilliant because I have no idea where to get started. It has been on my to-do list for a while. The first port of call would be their local council to ask if there is a service like that. You can head straight to our website and say aef.com.au. We've got lots of really useful guides as well as a quote request service. So we um, have a vetted list of suppliers, so providers that are trustworthy and know that they can do a good job because that's part of a challenge as well. There's some cowboys out there in the renewable space. We've got a vetted list of suppliers. So if you want to uh, tick the to-do list of getting some quotes off your list, you can use our website to request quotes and we can get three quotes to you um, for whatever you need. That is very good to know because I do think it is a complicated area at a time when people are more overwhelmed than ever, aren't they? (laughs) Exactly. And if there is a council relationship, so other than getting the three quotes, what might happen? It might be that the council provides some education sessions, so you might want to find out, for example, about, okay, I'm thinking about getting an electric vehicle. They're coming down in price over time. We can, some secondhand EVs are coming on the market. How do I accommodate that in my home? What does that mean if I'm thinking about getting solar? What does that mean if I'm thinking about getting a battery? We provide education sessions to people in a council area to come along. We also work with councils to provide bulk buys, which is a more economical way often to access things like hot water heat pumps, other improvements in the home. So just making it a simpler, easier, affordable process, basically. That makes sense. And can I just ask one question? People keep talking about heat pumps. Tell us what a heat pump is. I did not know the answer to this until we installed one in our home. So a massive part of the energy transition is weaning ourselves off gas as soon as possible. So a lot of homes around the country and particularly in the southern states use gas for their hot water heating system. So that's basically you ignite, you boil up the water and that's what you get to enjoy in your shower A hot water heat pump uh, is using an electric component to draw in the air from outside of the heat pump and turn that into hot water. So much more 
energy efficient. It doesn't use gas, it can use electricity. And so it's a much better option. And I can tell you works just as well as um, a gas hot water system works beautifully. And I heard Bill Gates had bought a whole lot of heat pumps for people, but I yes. didn't know that they were for hot water. Are there also heat pumps that do just general heating or? Yeah, you can also get for home heating and particularly in very cold climates that's used more commonly because if you're using it for home heating, it usually needs to go into the ground, which is a bit of a cost. But in very cold climates like Alaska, that makes sense to do it. Oh, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. And so you talked about the fact that in some other jurisdictions, the kind of work that you do is funded off, off a levy. How are you guys funded? So predominantly through different government projects. We have a, a very significant project with the Victorian government. We have the local council subscriptions and also organisations like Energy Consumers Australia for our innovation pilots and community engagement projects. And do you also have stuff in a lot of different languages? I imagine that you might be serving a pretty diverse community. We do. I've only had a few days in the office since I started the role, but there's a beautiful display of these little yellowed brochures with home energy efficiency in all the local community languages. So that's something that we've continued to help us live up to the equitable part of our mission, make sure that all of our information is accessible in different languages. So you can find on our website lots of different um, videos in different languages and brochures. Thank you so much for talking about all of that. As I said, I'm so excited to find out about you uh, and your work because it does feel like such an issue for a lot of people. Complicated, expensive, like how do you get there? How do you do it? But also when we talk about the vision for what Australia might look like, I'm always really interested in the fact that if we get this bit of it right, life will be more comfortable. We often, I think, talk about this idea that kind of this transition is about deprivation, but actually this is about being warm in your home, comfortable. And I think as Australians, we are quite used to really coping with those variations in temperature. But if you get this right, then home is a much more comfortable place to be, which is quite quite a nice thing to look forward to. Any other suggestions if people need to find out more where they should go? Yeah, I'd love people to head to our website, www.aef.com.au to learn more about what we do and um, get involved. We're aiming to create climate resilient homes for 100,000 Australians. So lots of projects that we'd love to do to make sure that all homes in Australia are more energy efficient and uh, running off renewable energy. Great. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commongroundonclimate.org.